Hey guys, I wanted to welcome you today to Leaders in Business and Investing. I'm joined by a true legend and someone I admire very deeply. His name is Divya Narendra, and he is responsible for helping mold the social media industry, which we know so well today. While attending Harvard, Divya found a Harvard connection, which later became known as ConnectU, and ultimately later gave rise to Facebook. After then getting an MBA and a law degree, Divya worked in several prestigious roles on Wall Street where he came up with a fabulous idea for some zero, the world's largest online investment community that I recommend everyone check out immediately. Divya, it's a great pleasure to have you on today. Paul, thanks for the, uh, the generous intro. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. And, um, you know, I would like to start off by first maybe having you walk us through your experience building Harvard Connection and how you later leveraged that experience to build some zero. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I never planned to be an entrepreneur. I mean, this was something that um, kind of just hit me when I was in college. Uh, but essentially, um, you know, when I was uh, an undergrad, I guess this would have been sophomore year, um, I had been tinkering, tinkering around a lot online when I wasn't busy with uh, schoolwork and homework and, you know, just kind of dealing with, with class um, and noticed the rise of online communities um, circa 2001, 2002, um, you know, right around when Friendster and MySpace were gaining popularity. And, you know, I just noticed that, that those, those platforms had been growing fairly quickly. Um, but at the same time, it, it occurred to me that they were um, flawed in ways that were pretty significant. Um, most notably, the fact that, um, you know, there was really no quality control on any of those platforms. So if you were a, a MySpace user, um, you know, you can create a profile and, and, and sort of be quote unquote friends with, with other people on the platform, but there wasn't really much uh, in commonality. And, 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 and frankly, there was a lot of riffraff on, 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 on that platform and, and other platforms like it that just made it harder to establish meaningful connections online. And as I was kind of observing this, it hit me that, well, wait a second, why not create a similar tool, um, but for the university community, uh, where we could actually filter the user base by checking the email addresses of all of the prospective members. Um, so one of the, the sort of key insights behind um, Harvard Connection, which you know later became known as ConnectU, um, and the same sort of... Uh, Insight actually applied to the original version of Facebook, which back in those days was actually called the Facebook, um, was was simply checking people's email addresses and parsing the Harvard.edu um, component out of out of the email, so that we would know that everyone who was applying for membership was actually a student of the university. Um, sure. And so, it, and then it became fairly obvious that okay, if we kind of build a social tool for students, um, that they could use that tool for all kinds of purposes, be it social, educational, you know, forming study groups, um, but, but also kind of just connecting over common interests um, and that we could replicate that, uh, that experience at other universities, not just Harvard. And, and so that, that sort of became, uh, it was sort of a lightning bulb moment in, you know, in, in my, at least in my life. And, you know, when I, when I was um, thinking about it, I, you know, I, I, I just remember thinking, okay, I don't, I don't really know anything about building a business, um, but you know, maybe there are some other people 
in my community who could who could help me do this. Um, That's amazing. So, and how old were you at that time? I think I was 19. If I remember. Wow. Yeah, maybe 20, uh, 19 or 20. Um, but I, uh, you know, just reached out to classmates of mine initially with engineering backgrounds because back then, uh, at least at Harvard, they weren't teaching. Um, there was no HTML class, and there was no you know, there's no way to you know, learn CSS or, or, or HTML or PHP or any of the sort of tools du jour of that time. Um, was there a big startup community then? No, there was no um, accelerator community. There was no, frankly, um, VC community that, that focused on, um, uh, you know, incubating companies coming straight out of school. Like, I think, I think the idea that, you know, you could be 20 years old and go raise capital against some idea that you have was pretty uncommon back then. And, and I could probably, you know, on my left hand, name every sort of entrepreneur um, who was like serious about starting a business in college. Um, and, you know, the rest of my classmates were just focused on getting their internships and you know, following the tracks that they had sort of um, uh, set foot on uh, coming into college. I mean, there's so, you know, you either go into medicine or law or consulting or banking, you do one of those things and you kind of have your, uh, you, you have that path laid out in front of you, of you but there weren't that many people who were kind of going off the beaten path. Um, so it was, it was a very uncharted time, I think, for folks in my position who were trying to do something different. But, um, you know, luckily I, I had some, I had... <laughs> you know, an interesting cast of characters around me. So, you know, obviously the Winklevoss twins were, um, they, so they were my roommates in college and they came from an entrepreneurial family. Their father was um, a serial entrepreneur and, and it was something that, that they were interested in, you know, outside of, outside of rowing. And then there were a couple of engineers that I think um, had some really good chops, technical chops um, that were interested, but couldn't quite, um, you know, put it all together. And, and, and then one of my uh, friends, he had a brother who was two years below me, so he was class of 06. Um, and he knew Mark Zuckerberg, uh, who uh, I think they'd maybe shared some classes together or something like that. But, but anyway, so this, this, this guy kind of recommended Mark to, to me. And so, you know, Cameron and I reached out to him and met with him. And, you know, Mark was pretty excited about what we were doing, he decided to kind of help us join our team. And then, you know, a few months later, we were reading about the launch of the Facebook uh, in the Crimson. And we're, we're, we're pretty stunned. And we're kind of like, wow, this is exactly what we wanted to launch. <laughs> what happened? Um, and the rest is sort of history. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was a great experience for me to learn not only about you know, business formation, but also the dynamics of social media. And I think what was like really fascinating about Facebook story is that 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 website, um, they gained something like 8,000 users in 10 days. Wow, that's incredible. Essentially, like, they launched that site, and the next thing you knew, it was like everybody was on the platform. And, you know, I, I, you know that wasn't because he was handing out, um, you know, <laughs> uh, flyers for, uh, for, for his website, right? I mean, this is, this is purely a, a viral kind of word-of-mouth organic growth story. Right. And... It really sort of cemented the, the fact that we had tapped into, uh, you know, a, a need that that no one else had filled. 
um, including you know the MySpace of the world. So um, that was an interesting lesson, and and then of course um, some of the related lessons around you know first mover advantage and network effects and that sort of thing. Um, and just you know we spent a lot of time thinking about user engagement and a lot of the things that I think helped me uh, form Sun Zero, which is a different network, but uh, I think still relies on many of the same principles that um, you see at play with with larger networks like Facebook and LinkedIn and you know some of the more mainstream stuff. So, what advice would you have for young people today that want to venture off, uh, quit school, and start their own startup? You know, what would you use as kind of a barometer or a metric to determine whether or not it's a good idea? Well. I wasn't looking to, and I would never recommend that somebody just drop out of school haphazardly. I mean, I think you have to be pretty passionate about what you're um, aiming to build and, and also have done a lot of homework in order to justify leaving school, especially if you're in a, you know, if you're in a good school, if you're, in a, if you're in a competitive school where maybe that school has a brand that has some real value, like you don't want to throw that away uh, willy nilly. So um, I would say do your homework. And, and get as much feedback as possible, um, you know, especially if you can get feedback from trusted individuals who, um, you know, you know have relevant experience and know-how because they'll give you the types of, you know, um, feedback that will help you determine whether your concept is really worth pursuing um, or if, if not pursuing it in, its, in, its, in, in the form that you initially thought. Maybe, maybe it's something that you modify and then, um, own, you know, maybe a different version of it that might be worth taking to market. Um, it's a little bit of a balancing act. I, I mean, I don't want to, you never want to dash people's hopes because I feel like the signature uh, characteristics of, of most successful entrepreneurs is that they tend to be pretty, um, or certainly can be pretty stubborn and, and are, you know, in a, in a way like not willing to say, to say no. Or, or to take no for, for an answer. Um, you know, I, I think there's a certain persistence that's really, really important if you're going to go down the entrepreneurship route. Right. Uh, but at the same time, like, you have to be willing to take feedback because, you know, if you're, if you're dead set on a path and it happens to be totally wrong um, because you never got any sort of input, well, that's kind of on you. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, if... if you know, you, you did kind of get feedback and you did your homework and you still felt like the risk was worth it, then that's just kind of part and parcel of being, um, I think, a good entrepreneur. So anyhow, hopefully that's helpful. Oh, it definitely is. And, you know, another common question I get asked all the time is, when is it a good idea to take outside capital? Do you recommend it's something that you do immediately um, or is it something that you should put off to a later date? I think it, it's it's as soon as you feel like you're, you've got good terms. <laughs> like, there's no there's no right answer to that question because there there are examples of companies that have been immensely successful that never took a dime of outside capital, sure. and then there, then there are companies that took enormous um, boatloads of external capital and were you know yeah. huge failures. Um, and 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 there are other you know examples as well of companies that have done really well taking outside capital. So. I don't. I don't think it's it's so much um, like a one size fits all. But I, I think that you have to evaluate your own um, uh, your own situation um, in real time, 
and think hard about you know what your capital needs are realistically um, and 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 I think look at it in the context of the overall market so you know let's say you're you're launching a business and you're thinking about doing a seed deal you have to know like what a seed deal in 2020 looked like right and I and I think you have to then think about well Obviously, there's a range of valuations, there, there's a range of terms, but if you were to triangulate and figure out, well, what's typical of a seed deal, say, in New York in 2020, or in San Francisco in 2020, or in Chicago in 2020, and then compare that to um, what you think is ultimately fair, um, if those things line up, then you should absolutely go and seek capital. Um, and if you're offered capital and you're happy with the terms, like go take it. Right. But on the other hand, if you think that, you know, you're at the seed stage and you're better off and you think you can self fund the business, um, and, and maybe reapproach the capital raising conversation right. uh, when maybe you're at more of a post revenue kind of, you know, you're, you've got a growing business under your hands and, and, um, you know, you'd be better off talking to, to investors at that point in time than, than do that. I mean, I, I don't think there's a, a perfect time um, for all businesses. I think it just, it's very much a situation by situation uh, analysis. Very nice. And, you know, another question I want to ask you, because I know you guys do this very well after getting to know you and also your, your colleagues as well. Um, you guys have a great company culture. So I was curious to learn more about how you built that and what you would recommend to other startup founders to get that kind of same culture going. Um, well, first off, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I mean, look, I don't, I don't know if uh, I have anything original to add on, on, on the subject, but um, I mean, it all starts with the hiring process and how we screen for individuals. We are, it's kind of interesting because of the whole George Floyd um, uh, uh, series of events and, and, and the, you know, a lot of the, the, the recent um, sort of political discussions around race. And like, it kind of made me think about our business and just how we think about hiring. And, and you know, the more I thought about it, I was like, it kind of hit me that our, our company is actually quite diverse, even though we're a fairly small team. So, you know, we're, we're only 14 people. But if I, if I look through kind of our existing team and I think about the folks we've hired in the past, I mean, we've... Um, you know, we, we've, we've had people from most nationalities, um, obviously both genders, um, different orientations, et cetera. And it's, race itself has never been part of our, uh, like a specific part of our kind of hiring criteria, but it just, we've kind of taken more of a, um, you know, let's find the best person we can for a specific role, um, you know, that kind of approach. And it's just kind of naturally led to what's turned out to be, I think, a fairly diverse team um, and I think the other piece of it is that we sit in an open space. Um, we don't have much in the way of physical walls separating, um, you know, our, our, our team. So like our salespeople and our marketing people sit, you know, five feet away from our engineers. And that's awesome. And then, you know, I so, think one of the things we did was like from a senior level, like I, I kind of made sure that like our senior engineer and our senior sales person that, that they have a good line of communication. Um, and it just turns out that, you know, because the folks at the top kind of work pretty collaboratively, that 
it's sort of filtered down downstream a little bit. So like, I don't think there's really anyone on our team, including myself, who um, anyone else on the team would have trouble um, stepping into the office of or reaching out to. Um, and I think that's just partly the fact that we just physically are all in the same space. Um, you know, we don't, maybe this, <laughs> it's funny because now because of coronavirus, right. a different tack as far as um, office structure goes, but, but I actually think it's better to kind of keep people accessible because if they're not, you end up um, with a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I think you can end up with some awkwardness and um, maybe just a lack of um, comfort in, in, in sort of the, the spontaneous conversations that would otherwise occur if people were kind of sitting close together. Very nice. You know, I come from quite a similar background in the sense that I worked a couple of corporate, you know, jobs. And if I had a question, I would think twice before just walking into the managing director's office. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's a big game changer and something that we try to deploy over here too. Yeah. You know, my yeah. next, yep. Go ahead. My, my next question was going to be, how did you come up with the idea for some zero? I mean, this is something that's been very fun to my partner and I, and something that has been a real game changer to us. Um, sure. So I'm just really fascinated and well, want to hear that story. Yeah. So I used to be, I think you mentioned this earlier, but in your preamble, but I, so I used to be an analyst at a fund myself. And so I've spent, um, you know, before starting some zero, I'd, I'd spent a number of years in finance. I spent a year working at a very large hedge fund and, and, and really learned the ropes around not only investing, but also, where data and, 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 and particularly data that relates to the investment markets, like where does it come from? And where are people getting research from? And so I, I learned a lot about the sell side model and kind of just how Wall Street works and um, realized a lot of the flaws that exist with Wall right. Street. Uh, most notably the fact that, um, you know, sell side research is uh, often conflicted because these analysts are writing about companies that, are their own clients, right? Um, and you know, also with Wall Street research, they because their whole business model is predicated on um, trading volume and trading commissions. You know, most of the the content is is about bigger companies. So Goldman's going to write about you know big tech. They're going to write about um, Boeing. They're going to write about you know some of the large cap names. They'll have some mid cap coverage, obviously, but when, once you get to small cap and below, they really don't offer much in the way of research. And so if you're an analyst at a fund and you know, your whole, uh, your mandate is to, to buy low, sell high, right? It's to find alpha and, and make good long-term investments. If, if that's your mandate, well, you're not gonna get coverage on a huge swath of companies because they're just not written about by Wall Street. And right. um, all these guys, they also don't have any skin in the game. They're, they're, in fact, they're prohibited from owning the shares of, co of the companies that they're writing about. And so, when you think about where do you want to go if you're interested in high quality insights on um, a broad swath or a, a, you know kind of the broadest array of companies, but you can't really go to the sell side and you, you have to go to the buy side, mainly analysts who invest for a living and, and invest professionally. And but good. before yeah. some zero, nobody was aggregating their thoughts. And that was just, that was kind of the plain and simple insight with, with creating some zero was like, we wanted a forum where professional investors could share information and research um, and do so in a transparent way uh, where, you know, their names were associated with their research. So they're, you know, so they had an incentive to really put their best foot forward and not just post, you know, 
mediocre ideas, but, but really to kind of use the platform to build their own track records, build their reputations, um, and, build, and build their brands. And that's huge because you and I both know that when you work for funds, typically the person who usually gets the you know, credit for a good idea is usually the manager or the portfolio manager. Um, right. And, and you know, some zero is, it gives credibility and authority to the actual analysts. I love that about it. Yeah, the, 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 the ability to form a track record that's essentially stamped by a third party um, I think is really powerful. Now, in addition to that, our members who are contributing research are also getting feedback on their ideas. So you might think you know everything about Tesla, but you know if somebody at another fund pokes holes in your thesis, like, I mean, that's, that can be hard to take at times, but on the other hand, it's, it's super useful if they've got a perspective that, that maybe you don't. Um, and so I've, I've actually found personally that you know, there have been situations where I've used the site and discovered something about a company that, you know, I haven't heard of. But then also, I've been in situations where I've read something on some zero that was contrary to my initial thoughts on a company and have been swayed 180 degrees because of something I've read on the site um, that maybe pointed to data or, or, or you know, analysis that, that I just didn't, didn't really under, or initially um, uncover my, on my own. So I think that's super, super useful. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, I had the great pleasure of speaking to a lot of analysts that are on some zero and uh-huh. they were telling me that they got so many jobs through the platform and that it's a way better resource than, you know, what we're typically used to like LinkedIn or um, recruiters out in the industry. Yeah. Well, the major difference between some zero and, and a traditional recruiting platform is that SumZero is first and foremost a research platform. And in our industry or in the asset management industry, your research is your work product. So in terms of like what actually gets you a job or what might help you raise capital if you happen to be fundraising, it's your ideas, right? And, and it's, it's not just how those ideas perform, but it's the why, it's the qualitative analysis behind the target price um, that really explains that, that author's thinking. Um, and so, you know, I've, um, I mean, this, this, is, this is anecdotal, but there, I mean, yeah, there have been many cases where folks on some zero who have developed a track record um, and have consistently posted, you know, thoughtful ideas, well, they will get approached from um, other managers who might be looking to hire, or maybe from foundations or pension funds that are looking, or family offices that might be looking to, to deploy capital. Um, because by the time that outside party has reached out to that analyst, they've maybe read a, a handful of ideas and they kind of understand how that analyst thinks. And, you know, how does it help uh, hedge funds or private equities that might be on the platform in regards to capital allocation? Sure, yeah. So um, there are now a few hundred capital allocators on the platform. Uh, and these are either family offices, university endowments, pension funds, foundations, uh, multifamily offices. Uh, and, and then they're able to basically look at fund profiles where um, you know, someone like yourself can essentially create a profile for their fund and describe in detail what they do. So um, you know, they can have bios of the managers, they can, have, they can upload their fee structure, their references, professional references, 
um, their monthly letters, and also feature the ideas that they've posted on SumZero. And that way, those allocators can read that content and, along with the other profile information to determine whether that fund might be uh, you know, the type of vehicle that they'd want to reach out to to set up a dialogue. Now, we don't actually um, get in the way of those, uh, like any kind of transaction that might occur as a result of connecting those two parties, which is very unique, like sort of the opposite of a typical or traditional third-party marketing service, where they would essentially act like a broker and, and take a fee if that fund was successful in raising money. We, we don't actually do that. So instead, we've kind of taken more of a, you know, a little bit more of a hands-off approach, but we've been um, starting to offer a whole series of kind of um, almost like PR initiatives to help firms that are, or emerging managers that are looking to raise money actually, you know, build a, a bigger brand and, and really get their content in front of more allocators, um, both within the SumZero ecosystem, but even beyond um, through kind of our own social media channels and other kind of marketing channels that we have access to. That's amazing because before this, you know, no matter how good you were, if you didn't really have that networking prowess, it was kind of hard for a new manager to come along and raise capital. Yeah, I, I mean, fundraising is tough no matter who you are. I mean, I think uh, that's definitely a, one of the bigger complaints that we get from managers is just, challenge, you know, it's tough to raise money. Um, but, I mean, my belief is just that if, if you're prolific and thoughtful about producing really good quality research, that is going to help you generate the sort of conversations and dialogues that are really compulsory and if your goal is to ultimately raise capital. Because no one is going to give you money just because maybe you have decent returns. Like that in itself um, isn't, frankly, isn't good enough. Like I, I think um, to develop a trust that uh, you need to develop with an outside um, uh, source of capital, like they really have to understand your investing philosophy. Um, and then we can kind of step in to amplify that signal and to make sure that as many folks as possible you know, understand how your strategy differentiates from all the other funds out there. Um, and so that's kind of the approach we've taken. I mean, obviously different companies do it differently, but I think for us, the, you know, it sort of all starts with the content and the integrity of that content. And then from there, uh, you know, we have this growing ecosystem that we can, where we can, we can sort of, you know, disseminate that content to the appropriate parties and then, you know, hope that they, that they find enough common ground to, to set up a meeting or a call and then take it from there. Right. And I know you had the pleasure of meeting a lot of great hedge fund managers, um, a lot of successful hedge funds on the platform. And, you know, looking back, what would you say were some of their qualities that made them so successful? Um, I, I don't know if there's one, but I mean, I think the most basic is just um, sort of attention to detail. Like, I mean, I, I think um, the, in general, like the folks that tend to do the best, also do the, the sort of the deepest dive, kind of, you know, like they just do really good research. But the other, the other kind of more, I think this is more of a personality trait. Um, uh, look, I, I kind of feel like um, if you have patience, like that, that in itself is an edge over many investors who try to time the market in a way that's just counterproductive. And, um, you know, it's funny, one of my, uh, Close friends is actually one of the highest ranked analysts on SumZero, um, and uh, we did a whole podcast with him just talking about um, cognitive biases and 
you know, how they can result in, um, you know, discrepancies in intrinsic value in a stock and, and, and also opportunities for investors who are able to kind of isolate those, those biases and how they might affect, you know, investors. And, and, and I, so I think if you have, um, like a good, uh, you know, if, if you can sort of understand things like herd thinking and, and other, you know, sort of, um, other biases that people have, like sort of the psychology of investing, that that in itself can provide a screen for finding opportunities that you can then look at through a fundamental lens um, and, and, and then, you know, potentially generate alpha. Uh, and I've sort of seen that in my own portfolio, just, you know, situations where I feel like, you know, you read the news and, you know, it's, it's clear that the media has taken a story, from, you know, and, 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 and blown it way out of proportion. Right. Uh, Turn a you know a, a mountain out of a molehill, and, and the next thing you know, stock prices are, are getting all haywire. Um, and those moments usually result in really great opportunities. And in, in fact, recently, um, you know, back in March, we, we were sort of pounding the tables with our clients and our community that like, look, this is this is an incredible time because of uh, because of coronavirus. Like we're seeing, you know, some some really great tier one best of breed companies trading at you know, huge discounts to intrinsic value, even after accounting for some of the impact from COVID, like now's the time to kind of really take a hard look. Um, and, you know, of, of course, two months later, three months later, um, we, we're, we're basically at pre-COVID levels. And, and um, anyway, I, I, I think the psychology of the markets is really important for, for analysts to look at when they um, try to screen for names. Very nice, okay. Um, and, you know, you've been in the industry for quite a while. So I was curious to wonder, like, what have you seen in regards to changes around the investment management space, whether it's test funds or private equities? Um, you know, some people say that it's consolidating and a lot of money is being concentrated in the bigger funds. Um, others say that, you know, passive is kind of taking over, which I strongly disagree. And, you know, I was just curious to get your thoughts around that. Well, I don't have any... Um great data on the passive versus active investing um, debate. Although I will say that I think now is as good a time as ever for right. active investing, because even though the markets are, you know, in, in basically back from pre-COVID levels, there's a great deal of dispersion in the market. So, you know, obviously hotel, like travel, um, you know, retail, a lot of these sectors have gotten completely hammered. Um, now, some of that is, is deserved. And, and, you know, I think, um, you know, it makes sense that, um, you know, somebody like, like Hawaiian Airlines or United Airlines should be trading at a significant discount to where they traded before COVID. Sure. But definitely. there are other cases where, you know, maybe there's, there's actually a strong case for a comeback. Um, and, and so I would say that, that that's kind of where the active investor really, you know, starts to, um, you know, earn their, earn their, earn their pay. And, and, and so... I, I don't know if that, that actually means that we're, there are there have been significant inflows into, into active investing, but uh, I would argue there, there probably should be just given what's going on in the investing landscape. Um, what, what was your, you had another question though, I think I forgot the other part of your, uh, your oh, uh, question. Uh, that kind of hit all of it. You know, um, I'm kind of in the same camp myself because a lot of people uh, think that Active management is just going to be concentrated among several different hedge funds like, you know. Oh, yes. Okay. That was the other piece of it, the concentration. Um, I honestly, I mean, 
like here, there's a little bit of an ebb and flow, but I, I've sort of, and this is anecdotal because this is kind of what we see as a business. Um, there is a tendency of the very large funds to frankly underperform because they just don't have access to the same um, range of investment opportunities that a smaller manager would who's more nimble. Right. Um, like so I, 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 you know, I think, look, if you're, if you're MIT or if you're like a, a large university um, where you have a huge amount of capital to deploy, it is, it is physically difficult to deploy, you know, $10 million of capital at a time. You know, you're looking to write $100 million checks. And so the fund managers that you're talking to kind of have to have that type of capacity. That said, um, there are thousands of hedge funds, and the vast majority of them are actually under $100 million in AUM. I remember reading a stat in the New York Times a few years ago that I think it was like a, a full 50% of hedge funds were under $100 million in, in AUM. Um, so it's not like there's any shortage of small money managers. I, I mean, I think the challenge is um, that, that there are only a small subset of managers that consistently outperform the markets. Um, and there, I would say it, it doesn't matter what your AUM is. Like in the public markets, at least, um, you could argue that the smaller managers have significant advantage over the bigger managers just because they can focus on some of the smaller cap opportunities that may not be available to Fidelity and, and some of the big funds. Right, things less covered. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I have my LinkedIn feed on here and I ask people, um, you know, if they have any questions to send them over. And one that got the most likes here was, can you please ask Divya, what would he recommend for those trying to find their passion? Is this something that you find by yourself or it finds you? Well, well first off, I'd say that's an extremely important pursuit. <laughs> um, it's Life is much, much easier if you find, if your job is your passion, because then you're not really, you know, you work and you don't, you don't even realize it. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I think the way to find it is just to, is to, is to get exposure, um, as much exposure as you can, as early as you can. Um, so, you know, as far as career selection goes, um, I think we probably all grow up with certain, um, you know, maybe a proclivity towards a certain industry because maybe a family member happened to be in that industry or, you know, maybe, uh, your academic institution pointed you in one direction or another, but but I, I think it's it's great to slow that 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 down a little bit and and to try things that um, are out of your comfort zone. Um, now entrepreneurship is is almost by definition will put you out of your comfort zone because it, it's 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 a somewhat um, it's like a jack of all trades career where you know you you kind of need to tap into a lot of different skill sets. Um, you're, you know, you've got to be good at selling. You've got to be good at understanding, kind of um, thinking analytically and, and thinking about risk. You have to, you have to take risk. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's that. Um, but, but whatever the industry might be, um, I, you know, I think it's just important that you try a bunch of different things. And so, I don't know how many of your listeners are kind of at the college level or younger, but that's like the perfect, you know, laboratory environment to, um, you know, to, to get exposure to, to different industries and. And different functional roles. I mean, it's not just the the, the, um, the industry you're in, but also what you do within that industry. So, you know, I've I've met people who never in a million years thought they would be good at sales or would enjoy sales. Sure. But then they tried, and they turn out to be awesome at it. Um, and on the flip side, I've hired numerous people at Sum Zero 
who never coded in college, but after they, um, you know, like we've actually, it's funny, we hired a few, uh, a few, a few engineers who used to be attorneys, you know, they were like working at big law firms and then decided they hated it. And they, they gave coding a try and, and ended up loving it. And the next thing you know, they end up being great engineers. So, um, I think that's great. And I, and I think now because there's so much like online education and, um, almost like boot camp style training for different careers with different functional roles, be it coding or, um, big data or, 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 or uh, you know, maybe marketing or, um, social media marketing, all this kind of stuff that you can within call it a three month period, get a really, really useful crash course in something you, you knew nothing about. And then, you you would kind of know like okay is this really for me can I can I turn that into a career and so I think I think there are a lot of tools available for folks to to experiment more um, and really hone in on what they truly you know want to spend their time doing. I love it. That's great advice. I can have said that any better myself. Um, you know the last question I have for you is there's a lot of institutional investors that are going to be listening to this and I'm sure they're going to love to join some zero. You know how could they do so? Oh, uh, just go to sumzero.com. There's a big join join button on the homepage, um, and uh, we sort of funnel people based upon uh, a little Q and A. We, we ask a few questions, and we, we'll channel them to the right spot. But but essentially, whether you're a professional investor, a an allocator, um, or even and this is something that that we're um, just starting to to kind of unlock, even for individual investors who do not work at um, you know. Uh, let's say professional investment, you know, money management firms, um, they too can have access to uh, some zero um, that's you know somewhat different from the the professional access. But but really, for anyone who's interested in the public markets, there's a place for you on some zero. So I would just recommend that people go to the go to the homepage and um, and apply for access. Okay, and uh, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so there? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn, so it's probably the easiest thing uh, for, for, for folks to just reach out to me that way. Um, also on Facebook as well. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Divya, for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure.